You are listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast with me, your host, Kieran Pedley. On this podcast, we take a data-driven look at the world of politics and beyond. On our first episode, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the Labour Party with Aisha Hazarika and Alastair Campbell. So do check that one out if you're interested. And on this episode, we talk about the Conservatives. I was joined by Baroness Kate Fall, who is the former Deputy uh, Chief of Staff to Prime Minister David Cameron, and also Asa Bennett, the Brexit um, editor at The Telegraph. And I spoke to Kate and Asa uh, for about half an hour or so about the state the Conservative Party finds itself in now, how it might differ from that one led by David Cameron, and also the challenge uh, posed to the government and the future of the Conservatives in government by the election of Keir Starmer as Labour leader. And we also looked at other things like Brexit and what might or might not decide the uh, hypothetical future general election. I am sure COVID and the pandemic comes up more than once. So hopefully you enjoy this conversation. If you do, please like and subscribe the podcast wherever you get your um, wherever you get your podcasts and share the, the episode as wide as you can um, with friends and, and everyone else uh, and, t- and just tell people about the show. It really helps uh, spread the word. Um, but for now, over to the conversation with Kate and Asa. You're listening to the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. I'm here with Baroness Kate Fall and Asa Bennett of The Telegraph. Welcome to you both. Um, I, thought I'd, I thought I'd start just by getting your general take on um, where things stand at the moment. It's obviously a I feel like we've been saying this for years now, a tumultuous time. Um, I mean, Kate, where do, you, where do you see the state of our politics at the moment and the, and the state of the government? Well, it, it certainly has been an extraordinary time. I mean, it's actually a real lesson that you, you set yourself up as um, we think of Boris or we thought of Boris as the Brexit prime minister. You know, he campaigned on this. He won his premiership. He won, won the country and the party, as it were. And then within just a months or weeks even of him taking that position he'd wanted his whole life, he's gone straight into one of the biggest crises, global crises I think I've certainly known in my political lifetime. So right now our opinion of, of Boris has been sort of turned on its head. He's he's no longer the sunny optimist, you know, taking us into the post-Brexit pastures. He's now dealing with this very difficult, very emotional issue, which has now become an economic crisis. Hey, so what would you what would your take on that be? Well, certainly it's been an extraordinary year with the jubilation of Boris as well getting Brexit done and then falling into a uh, matter where he's having uh, you know marriage, near death experience, a baby, all while being in Downing Street, and at the same time having to handle this pandemic, which has produced umpteen terrible news stories and challenges galore you know, the worst crash in modern memory, it it seems to be. And so many sort of generationally defining challenges for various industries. And all the while, you know, he's having to run to stand still. It's trying to rewire the Michael machine. They do so much on so many different fronts. And while saying this, while spelling out these challenges, I personally, speaking of data and the polling subject of this podcast, have been amazed by how the Tories are still ahead amid all this. You can make comparisons to sort of Black Wednesday in terms of uh, challenges for the Tories' economic reputation and how they have to try and seem as competent as possible amid all this. But despite that, they have been holding up very robustly, 
all the more so over Labour, despite their new brand spanking leader. And we'll come into some of the voting intention figures. Um, I'll throw some of those out later. I suppose what, that, that's a good point. And what strikes me is when we were asking about specifically COVID um, maybe a month or so ago, the consensus in public opinion is that the government locked down too late and look, people can judge whether that's correct or not. That's, but that's the public perception. That's what we're there to measure. But then when you ask people why that was, um, what, why did they act too late? It's not necessarily uniform that that two thirds or so that think that blame the government for doing so. So for example, I mean, the majority of those people do and they say, oh, it was a government cock up and you know, messed things up, you know, the usual things that you hear in public opinion. Um, but there's also a, a decent chunk of people that said, well, they were either badly advised, maybe, or um, they made decisions that, in hindsight, you might have made differently, but they were sensible for the time. So it does feel like when you look at public opinion and when you look at focus groups, there's a degree of public sympathy for just how unprecedented um, the situation is. But of course, I suppose, um, Kate, the next sort of six months to several years, that might change, mightn't it? I mean, public opinion might be sympathetic to the government now, but when the economic reality bites... That could change. So I think, I mean, look, I think um, the public are very smart. I mean, I've, I'm always I'm always minded whenever I, I, I've been to many general elections, just how smart people are, they make good decisions. I think they are, rightly, have been understanding of the enormous pressure which the government's been under. And there's no right decision often in these things. You know, they're, they're trying to weigh up lives versus livelihoods. And actually, in the end, it was much more complex even than that because the scales were going up you know, all the time between the two and not and, and, and lives each side of the equation, if you like. But, you know, there were some decisions which do remain difficult and which I think they will have difficulty when it comes to the inevitable review. And by the way, that will come and come. I mean, inevitably, there will be a blame game. There will be a who is right here, you know. And there were difficult decisions around, you know, the app going wrong, the testing not coming out, the PPE, the terrible sadness of the, the, the care homes so look they're not through all of this yet but what is interesting i think you're absolutely right is is that people have really gathered round at the moment you know britain in a crisis it's it's wonderful to see the way in which communities have responded and they they have rallied around the government and what will be interesting to see is whether in six months time when the economy really begins to bite they'll begin to feel a bit less positive hey so what do you think I mean, it's certainly a fascinating question because obviously we remember just mere years ago that the Tories used to be the party of there is no magic money tree and fiscal austerity balancing the books. And now you have the current prime minister saying that he's not going to go back to what they called austerity during those years. And you certainly see this with the furloughing scheme that has applied a sort of economic anaesthetic. Um, in helping dull the pain of potential job losses, but already we're seeing some of that come through. Um, and yet at the same time then, you know, the government's had to try and pick various fights amid all this in terms of its initial resistance to extending free school meals, perhaps because they were fearing the cost. But then in the grand scheme of things, given how much they're spending, it was a very fast and easy U-turn for them to make after Marcus Rashford's campaign. And I suppose then we come down to this sort of delicate particular situation that when you have debt now being what near 97% of GDP, it's a huge, humongous, historic amounts. Um, you know, how do you start to right the ship? At some point, Rishi Sunak in the coming days is going to have to announce uh, you know, delayed tax rises, or you know, the Sun Tories would prefer it just to be cuts, more tax cuts, more tax cuts. 
Um, but then, yeah, what does this mean? How? What is austerity mark two? That's the thing I've been really watching out for, because obviously the Chancellor's made very clear he has to um, you know, the ship. And Boris may not like it. He may be a guy who wants to make people feel cheery and happy and to promise um, as good a future as he can. But, you know, obviously, while there is an era of cheap money we're in, you have to pay for the coronavirus response somehow. It's funny you mentioned Rishi Sunak. Um, I was about to come to him. Um, one of the questions we asked in our recent political monitor was how well or badly do you think each of the following have handled the crisis or the coronavirus outbreak so far? 60%, 16, 6 in 10 I think Rishi Sunak has managed the crisis either very or fairly well. Um, only 14% think he's managed it um, badly. That compares to with Boris Johnson, it's 45% think he's done well, 42% think he's um, think he's done badly. And this obviously leads to sort of somewhat, I mean, I'll say it, premature speculation about Rishi Sunak being a future prime minister. But um, you know, he's someone that the public have really taken to. I mean, we'll come to Keir Starmer's ratings later, so let's park that. But he seems to have... Um, been, been an impressive figure, at least in public opinion terms. Well, I agree. I think he is a very impressive figure. And he, he looks like a grown-up in the room. And he is a grown-up in the room. Um, and he's handled himself extremely well. I mean, it, I, I completely agree, though, with the dilemma ahead. You know, we are facing a recession at some point. You have to pay for the debt, whether it's through increasing taxes or cuts or whatever. And I think that, you know, as, as we, people come out of furlough, people are losing their jobs this week. All those things are very, very difficult, being the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But the one thing, you know, that I remember from our own experience of this is that when the country is in this difficult period, it comes down to, in a sense, you know, how you pull together. And there was a sense of a unified um, national um, attempt to put our finances back on track when we began in 2010 in the coalition. Austerity wasn't, you know, for, for some game or for fun. It was really, it was to stop our economy becoming like Greece. And I do think that the key thing for Rishi is that he finds a way to look at, you know, people feel you know, for everyone to bear the burden of that, a sense that we're all in this together and that you don't have this difficulty that, that came towards the end of our time where we're, we had a great um, jobs recovery, but there were some stickiness around wages. And I think all those issues should be absolutely on his desk. And presumably, Asa, I mean, I'll get your thoughts on this, Kate, as well. I mean, presumably part of the, the reason that Boris Johnson has said there'll be no return to austerity is because they recognise that public opinion may not wear that in the way that it perhaps once did. Well, look, I mean, we, we remember during the Cameron years when there were marches down Whitehall over the prospect of a passy tax and sort of seemingly innocent and innocuous things. Um, now we look back at the scale of spending and, you know, sort of the fiscal adjustments we're having to do here. Um, and obviously, when you've just come off the back of an election victory, seeing off um, a Corbynite agenda, which was promising all sorts of tax rises, um, you, you know, you, this is why the PM has been painfully keen to make clear, as he did in Dudley, that he is not a communist. Um, but nonetheless, uh, at some point... Hardly you know, a revelation, it, I suppose, is it? Well, I, I know. But the thing is, but given the level of, shall we say, the blend of left-right politics he's doing, um, you know, trying to you know, find this new centre ground, he feels almost he has to reassure that Tory right, who aren't hearing enough about cuts of you know, taxes in the way they would like. Um, you know, because obviously they believe in the sort of self, the fact that tax cuts can pay for themselves. And Boris would like to kind of straddle both camps in the same way some would argue that he straddled both camps in the early days of uh, the EU referendum and before finally plumping for leave. And so I think it's that um, 
to use the Cam Cameronite phrase, the Osborne phrase, you know, difficult decisions will have to be made. But at the moment, um, this is the thing, you can play all sorts of jiggery pokery with the balance, you know, balance sheet. Um, and a given you have to just project for the moment that sense of competence and drive and that hoping that, look, you, you can invest a lot in the V-shaped recovery. For example, the hope for the bounce back will start to pay dividends. So if you just keep the you know, wheels turning, not having a narrative of decline, keeping that sort of boosterism, as Boris is very proud to associate himself with, then maybe that will slightly mask everything. At the same time, we must remember that, yes, uh, as per my job, perhaps on Brexit, that, you know, we now know there will be no transition period. It will happen Brexit in December, at very least with no deal. And maybe, with amid all the upheaval, perhaps, you know, that this sort of adjustment means that there'll be a brave new world of trading and commerce next year in which there'll be a bigger adjustment for the economy and everyone can get used to it all in one. So there's a lot to absorb over the coming months. I, I would just add that I think that obviously because Boris won this amazing victory um, with a sort of new coalition of electorate moving from our coalition, which was much more sort of middle ground, um, into you know um, those sort of northern seats. Um, he does need, I mean, more than ever, it's very important that you ask yourself the question, recovery for, for who? And make sure that um, it's felt all over the country so that, yes, we want jobs recovery, but also, again, back to what I said before, that, it, that we don't have more inequality and sluggish wages at the bottom. So that, that is another important part of their political agenda too. I was going to I was going to come to uh, that agenda, Kate, because I mean, presumably this Tory party, um, following the victory and the nature of that victory in December that Boris Johnson led, um, it's a, it's quite a different beast to the one that you were involved in with David Cameron, isn't it? Um, in terms of the agenda and and I guess the style of Boris Johnson's leadership as much as anything. Well, yes, you no. Know, I mean, the Tory party is is an incredibly um, you know, it evolves and it's very clever at winning elections and it understands that to live and to, to, to gain power, but also to do things, you have to change and listen. And I don't know that it's so different. I mean, obviously, you know, Boris is a Brexit supporting prime minister and we were a government and we were, we, you know, who, who believed that that was the wrong choice for our country. So from that point of view, um, yes, it's different. And quite a lot of people left after the last election, a lot of sort of senior women left, which from my own point of view, I, I, I regret. But it, it's good to see the numbers are still up. But you're, you're not, you're, you see there's a lack of sort of really strong women voices out there at the moment, which is something that I do think Boris needs to attend to. But it's more a Brexit party now. But has it shifted hugely in terms of its political philosophy? I'm not sure. Hey, so your thoughts? On the Tory shift in political philosophy, well, I mean, we saw they went into the 2015 election still being uh, in favour of building on Britain's place in the single market. And now 2019, they make very clear they are leaving the single market and all the EU institutions. It's not so much that they are the Brexit party, they are the Brexit delivering party. They have had to do that to see off Farage. And the risk of doing so, we saw in 2017, what happens then? You have... Um, well, actually, I stand corrected, because obviously Farage wasn't an issue in 2017. He thought that Theresa May was going to get the job done. So obviously Boris has sort of doubled down on all that. Um, and yes, um, definitely the Baroness is right, absolutely, that they've changed the electoral makeup of the coalition. Um, it is now, you know, they smashed down the red wall, built back with blue bricks. Um, and they it's fascinating to see what composition that involved, because... 
they say very openly they're very pro delivery of Brexit and getting everything done. They, I think there's an interesting contingent now rising on China and Huawei in, the, in, in a real um, you know, reaction to the Osborne and Cameron years when they were very much embracing, rolling out the red carpet to China. Uh, now there's the China research group, the sort of CRG, the sort of sinoseptic version of the ERG. Um, and they're very keen sort of pulling out, uh, getting rid of Huawei, kicking them out in terms of investment purposes, um, and really trying to mount a strong front uh, as regards, you know, the issues like what we've seen in Hong Kong. Um, and so there's definitely lots of changing attitudes and shifts in opinion. Um, although, of course, you are seeing with the CRG that there's similar people who are leading on Brexit, uh, like Ian Duncan Smith and Mark Francois, are very much involved. So there are some familiar faces, but equally some changing attitudes. Um, CRG, ERG, what else have we got? We've got a DRG coming. I, I mean, there must be a few uh, similar ones. <laughs> uh, I, I want to talk a bit about the um, uh, the opposition. So um, Keir Starmer, leader of the Labour Party, um, uh, people that listen to this podcast today for the first time might want to check out our most recent episode with Aisha Hazarika and Alistair Campbell, um, where we talked a bit more in a bit more detail about the ins and outs of Labour's situation. But the, the stat that stands out in our most recent uh, polling was that Keir Starmer has 51% of the public saying they're satisfied with the job he's doing as Labour leader, and 20% dissatisfied. Um, and one from the other is uh, plus 31, plus 31 net rating. And the only other time in the history of us doing this, and this goes back to when Margaret Thatcher was leader of the opposition, um, the only other time someone's achieved a plus 31 score, nobody's beat it, was Tony Blair in 1994. Now, the difference there is that John Major was a lot less popular than Boris Johnson is now. So Boris Johnson has roughly equal numbers say that they are satisfied with him as dissatisfied. Um, very much a known entity, um, you, you, the Marmite Prime Minister, if you want to call him that, at least at the moment. But as we know, first past the post, if you get sort of forty-five percent plus that like you, that that can serve you in good stead. Um, but anyway, obviously a very different leader, a different proposition for the Conservatives than Jeremy Corbyn, who, even when he almost, uh, I don't know if you call it one, but almost uh, entered Downing Street in two thousand and seventeen, um, even then he was he was polarizing rather than popular in the way Starmer is. Uh, and going into the last election, Jeremy Corbyn was extremely unpopular and had some of the worst ratings, in fact, the worst rating of any leader of the opposition we've um, we've ever tested. So we've gone from someone that had the worst ratings ever for a leader of the opposition to someone with some of the best. Um, people can speculate as to whether that will hold. Um, we know that there's usually honeymoon periods with these things, but still, plus 31, very, very good score for Keir Starmer. So it strikes me that the Tories face an opposition leader quite unlike the one that they just faced. So what, what, to what extent do you see Keir Starmer as a threat to the Conservatives in government? And I guess, how do they respond? Uh, I'll come to you, Kate, first. Well, look, it, it's a massive change. I mean, it, it, for, for years now, we haven't had a proper opposition, and now we have a proper opposition. So that is going to shift things very considerably. Not just that, that it's an opposition which has moved in a leap back to the more centrist ground, which we were sort of used to dealing with them under. So although there might be sort of bits of, of, of more the, the sort of Corbynistas there, it, it is a sort of victory for that middle middle grouping of the Labour Party. That's the first thing. The second thing is, start, it seems to me that Kirstama's leadership style has very much suited this period. He is a, a lawyer, he is a plan man, he's quite meticulous. He's been up against Boris in an empty parliament where, you know, he hasn't had the raw backbenchers behind him. He's, you know, he's gone through um, difficult questions for Boris in a very meticulous way. So 
that has suited his quite sort of legalistic style. Um, and the other thing I said is, you know, we have been in government a long time and there is just a natural ebb and flow of politics, um, a sense that, you know, people, all elections are really about change or can you afford change? And there's a sense that people give one party time and then it's time they sort of shift back to another. That's very, very natural. But the one thing I would say is being leader of the opposition is a very difficult job. It's it's often a sort of one-person show. Um, David did nearly five years. You know, you have to, you're coming up, you're, everything you say is about um, how you influence, you have no real power, you have to be agile, you have to be politically creative. And he's only just starting out. So, you know, he has quite a long way to go. So what what were some of the lessons do you think David Cameron learned? I mean, I'm sure you don't want to give Keir Starmer tips, but but what <laughs> what, what, what lessons did um, did David Cameron learn as leader of the opposition, do you think, and how to do that job effectively? Um, well, first of all, coming into a crisis, because we, we, we had financial crisis come to a halfway through. Um, we, we had to be very careful not to look like we were rocking the boat in the middle of a crisis. But at the same time, and the seminal moment for us was when we decided we, we had to come off their spending plans and opposed to fiscal stimulus, having supported the bailout, because we were just like, this is heading too far in the wrong direction. It's a really tense moment when you're, you just feel like the nation is at a crisis point. And I think you've seen a bit of that with Keir Starmer, you know, not wanting to be too disrespectful of, of, of Boris, but at the same time pushing back on some issues like the you know, um, care homes and, uh, and things like that. Um, so that's the first thing. I mean, I think the second thing is just, um, you know, you have to be agile. You know, government is a big machine. It wakes up on a Monday morning. <laughs> if you're running a really good opposition, you need to be making speeches on a Saturday or a, or, or a Sunday afternoon when you, you need to find your moments. You can make decisions more quickly over policy, whereas in government, you have to, you know, cabinet has to agree. So if, if you've got a really good operation and you're flexible, you should be able to uh, keep us um, on our toes. So I hope they're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, Asa, what do you think about um, Keir Starmer's start and um, how the Tories handle him? Well, it's interesting because obviously Jeremy Corbyn didn't really set a high bar for him to exceed now, did he? But uh, we know from the polling, um, if memory serves, that Labour at the time under Corbyn tended to poll better than Corbyn did. So that's why they were keen to, the Tories always always keen to refer to Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party, Corbyn's Labour. And now it's the flip side where Keir is polling better than the Labour Party. So you have someone who, yes, as you're saying, is a credible figure, someone who can convincingly seem like an alternative leader or definitely aspiring to be. Um, but then obviously his his colleagues, his party, they, they've yet to prove they have that necessary grip and um, you know, grit that is required. And so I suppose what you've seen in PMQs, the real shape up of public attitudes and how they're trying to be treated. I was initially struck by how the PM, uh, after the initial reviews Keir had of, gosh, he's so forensic. Did you know he used to be a barrister? Oh, so forensic. Look at that prosecutorial skills. Um, you know, how the PM initially seems to try and turn that on its head and sort of take the mick out of him. Um, you know, oh, this is your first witness, is it? I rest my case, sort of harumphing a bit like that. And I think that you, you've all heard Dom Cummings um, addressing Spad, saying that, oh, yes, this is just some Remainer lawyer. 
as if how that's they're trying to define him as mm -hmm. just some awful pedant who's you know nitpicking and isn't on the side of the nation um and the thing is recently this week he's sort of dropped that kind of legal shtick which i think is because when they go in the focus groups they find that voters don't actually hate lawyers as much as they might think um and maybe they think he's voicing some valid concerns so it's all going to be down to that slightly dry attribute of just displaying competency overall because actually I'm at risk of veering into sort of history and I know Kate may want to set me straight if I make a blunder but um, I do find this interesting parallels in the financial crisis uh, 2008 as regards now because obviously back then yes Cameron and Osborne seemed to be very much you know supporting the government there was a sort of rally around the flag effect for Gordon Brown um, in, you know after all the initial failed terror attacks and also security crises um, and then I seem to remember 2009, Osborne gave a speech in which he tried to differentiate uh, and say, oh, yes, we may have to actually have cuts. And this is a big thing because the Tories have been traumatized for years by being accused of being the nasty party, ready to take an axe to the public budget. Um, and then they, they sort of went, they went to sort of the center ground again. They sort of differentiated. So I think it's a Labour's trying to do its own sort of process of, OK, they're supporting the government, but now they're trying to find, say how they do things differently. Um, you know, they, whether they seem to be the party now pro-lockdown or not, um, and, you know, how they handle flashpoints like what's happening in Leicester. Um, and, yeah, currently it's, it's the process, they, they, they're not quite finding themselves yet as an independent voice, except just to disagree with whatever the government's doing. I mean, one of the things I like about doing focus groups, um, I've, I've chaired a few in my time, as it were, um, is there's a certain intangible to the way people vote. I mean, yes, OK, we know that age drives voting intention now, education um and still habit frankly still is still there i mean there are changes that we know about but there's still a fair amount of people that have uh, voted a certain way and continue to do so but when you talk to voters in focus groups there's a sort of intangible with politicians where they don't necessarily want the same old politician that doesn't tell the truth and all the rest of it mm. but actually when you look at someone like a keir starmer there's a sort of inherent, um, they pass the smell test, for want of a better phrase, with voters. They, so they've seen it before, which they might not always like, but then at the same time, there's a certain reassurance that, yes, I think someone like this can probably do the job of prime minister. And there's definitely something very gendered there and very kind of, um, there's an unconscious bias that you could spend a whole podcast talking um, talking to, but it, it's still there. And I suppose that when you put Keir Starmer in front of voters, um, they sort of see someone who, yeah, seems quite impressive. But I suppose... Uh, the, the policy um, will, will come later and, and people will have to make a judgment um, when that election comes. I mean, let's talk about that hypothetical election. I mean, it's obviously as many as three or three or four years away. I haven't looked at the exact calendar. Um, but what do we think will decide that? I mean, OK, leaving aside that God knows what events will happen in the next three years, it seems like the fallout from this pandemic and Brexit negotiations are going to be a significant factor in that, right? I mean, Kate, what do you, what do you think? I mean, what, what do you see setting the political tone in the next few years? Well, look, it, it is difficult to tell because if you if you think about sort of back early Cameron, you know, he, he, he led on a platform of social responsibility to begin with. It was sort of green issues, um, famously hug a hoodie, although he never said that, um, huskies. Um, overnight, the, the financial crisis comes along and then suddenly it's actually fiscal prudence, restoring the economic strength of our country. And as we were just discussing, you know, actually cuts, you know, we need a mandate and we need a mandate for change. We never thought that we would be there when we began that journey. So in a sense, I don't know that we know absolutely yet. I do think that 
um, how we get through this difficult period in our economy is at the, will likely be at the centre of it. Um, I think Labour will talk a lot about inequality, health inequalities, as well as economic inequalities. They will, they will probably talk about a sort of new social contract, modelling a new type of capitalism and an economy. And, 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 the, and then there will be Boris's Conservative Party, um, in a way, quite near the same ground, because Boris is, you know, he's an interventionist, he, he, he's throwing investment, and investment is, it was Gordon Brown's favourite word, <laughs> but I mean, quite rightly, I think, throwing you know, investment at things. So I think there will be a dance around the economy, especially if you think that those key seats that went from red to blue in those areas will be looking for, for support. And the other thing I would mention is, and another thing we were talking earlier, is the big geopolitical issue at the time is, of course, China and China in a way versus US. So our, our trade policy, in a way, is the most predominant part of our foreign policy at the moment. Who we engage with, how we do those deals, how we get, you know, how we get um, trade going again, and in a way, what happens um, with China and the US and ourselves, I think will be uh, uh, also the big sort of foreign geopolitical issue. It's, it's interesting. I mean, I often talk about this, but the, the, the out, I feel like the outcome of the presidential election in the US is going to have a quite, won't necessarily impact our future general election result, but it certainly will potentially have quite a big impact on our politics here. If, if all of a sudden Donald Trump's not there and it's a Joe Biden administration, you can't help but think that changes the dynamics quite significantly. I mean, Kate, what, one final question to you. I mean, how does how does Boris Johnson, how do Boris Johnson and the Conservatives manage to stay new, um, given that I mean, the Conservatives themselves have been in power for a long time and come the next election, Boris Johnson's government won't be particularly new either. So you talked earlier about how sometimes there's an ebb and flow of politics. I mean, presumably that's one of the biggest challenges the Tories face. I absolutely agree. I mean, they, they, I mean, they are aware of that. They are very skilled campaigners. And that's why you heard a lot of the sort of new Conservatives dropping austerity. You know, Dominic Cummings is, is, is aware of the fact that he needs to present a new face and a new reality, a, a party that has... A new, um, a new centre of ge ge geographical support, who are getting, you know, new new voters, um, who are delivering for those new voters. But obviously, the challenge for them is, in, in a in a difficult economic period, um, delivering for those people is difficult. So the challenge for them is making sure that those people are looked after. Um, Asa, I'll get a final couple of points from you. I mean, before we go to mm. the general, let's talk about um, uh, something specific in Brexit. So. I mean, our polling shows over the overwhelming majority of the public think that there'll be no um, deal, as it were. So, that, so Britain will exit the transition period um, without a deal. I mean, presumably, I mean, we haven't talked a lot about Brexit in the last sort of six months in this country for obvious reasons, but that could have a big impact too, right? Well, absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most important things that drove Boris Johnson's historic majority. And... You know, we all all know that the latest round of negotiations has ended with yet more acrimony, harumphing, you know, both sides being even more further apart, as Michel Barnier said. And it really could go either way at this rate, because you have essentially a matter where even if there was no trade deal, you know, WTO access, actually that's slightly closer to an FTA, that's more closer and suitable for the UK than it is for the EU, because... You know, it, there's, there's very subtle differences between what an FTA would actually bring in terms of rules of origin checks um, and all that. 
And the thing is, Boris sort of prepared the ground with talking about Australia-style uh, arrangements, which is sort of WTO plus, whatever we can scrape together to make it sound even more um, positive and sellable. Uh, so the thing is, in his heart of hearts, though, I can imagine that the Prime Minister would genuinely prefer some sort of deal. Um, and given that, you know, David Frost, the chief UK negotiator, is already destined to become his national security advisor once his job is complete, you can, and, and to get a peerage to boot, you can sort of imagine that this is going to be with the idea of trying to pull something out of the back. Um, and I think what's going to save him is this, that, yes, people will not care so much for the detail. In the same way that last year, um, he was able to get rid of the backstop by rebranding it a back, oh, sorry, a front stop and talking about democratic consent mechanisms and allowing effectively some sort of boulder down the Irish Sea. But the thing is, people were so relieved just to keep moving on and to keep having the wheels ticking over that they, he wasn't particularly then, you know, punished in any particular way. In the same way, I can imagine what will save him then is that he can, you know, no, no one's going to know if too much of a level playing field agreement has ever happened, if there's too much of a tie. No one's going to know, right, very few people will know offhand the subtle differences between what Canada has with the EU and what the UK would hope to have with the EU. So I think it's that lack of, you know, the, the easy way of spinning, making the most of the detail may well save him from any particular compromises. But this is the thing. I mean, we're in this high stakes poker game um, where at the same time, the no deal preparations are going. So provided, you know, he'll get a lot of rewards just from getting it done. So much of that is what's driving it right now. Just showing that, you know, there was a promise, there was trust, and he's delivered at least on that. So even after Brexit, this is the final point, you know, the talks will keep going. There'll always be conversations the UK is going to have to have with the EU and its trading partners. Obviously, given the UK wants to trade its way out of this crisis, so that's going to be all the more important it has good relations while it's doing so. But presumably the risk to the Tories, final, final point for me, is that if the Brexit negotiations are seen to be botched, alongside a perception that, that the response to COVID is being botched. And I'm not saying that that's what's happened, but this, you know, this is the story Labour will want to tell, isn't it? Um, we know that competence can drive election results. Then the, the double whammy of those things together could, could leave the government a year from now in a much different position than it is where, rather than polarising, Boris Johnson's unpopular, and rather than get, getting the benefit of the doubt, the, the government doesn't, and it's many you know, double digits behind Labour, let's say. It's certainly possible, because I think I'd say a few quick things on this. One, the reason why I'd say Rishi Sunak, for example, has been such an early heartthrob for people is because in terms of competence, he got up, he announced he literally pledged whatever it takes, throw all the money he can at saving the economy. And hey, who doesn't like money being thrown around? That's you know easy, very easy to do. Um, and obviously, while projecting that sense of assurance, authority. Uh, and in the same way, in the early days, the fact that the media, my journalist colleagues, were perhaps uh, obsessed with the old cliches of, OK, who's going to resign? OK, are you sorry for this? What's going to happen? That's why that allowed uh, some sympathy inherently among the public for the government, because it seemed like the media were just sitting there carping, sort of saying, why aren't you doing this fast enough? Good enough. What's happening? But as time has gone on, of course, scrutiny naturally is rightly ratcheting up. The public are waning in their sympathy because they want to see that, you know, schools we were all promised would be reopened in June and now hopefully going to be all reopened in September. And if the government, due to whatever it is, the struggles of the education unions or what have you, fails to do that, um, then it's going to re hit a real fever pitch. And so it's that basic, you know, retail politics of, you know, if your schools are, have not been re reopened yet, 
you know, within six months. And you could see your continental neighbours, they all have their schools back and there's a lot more going on. Their societies are wrapped up. While well, we have sort of lockdown whack-a-mole with your cities being shut down, almost turned off like light switches and back on again. You know, that you can understand that would almost be a sort of, you know, Black Wednesday-esque hit to the competence um, that could really say, you know, do they actually have much of a grip at all? I mean, yes, there at the moment is a huge amount of sympathy for the unprecedented level of the challenges. But obviously, this is why the PM is trying to show that drive and vision for the future, because he has to turn things around. He's able to, you know, almost a year in now, to relaunch his premiership, um, to try and really show that there is that sort of brighter future. And obviously, Boris is an irrepressibly chirpy sort of chap. He, he definitely is one who could provide that. But obviously, you know, we have many more months to see that turn, that upside of the V-shaped recovery, not just, uh, you can imagine, in the economy, but also then in the political fortunes going ever northward. Interesting times ahead, uh, very much so. Asa Bennett, thank you very much for your time, and uh, Baroness Kate Fall, same to you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was the Ipsos Mori Politics and Society podcast. A big thanks to our guests once again. If you like what you hear, why not subscribe to the show or tell a friend about us or share our content on social media. It all helps uh, grow our audience and spread the word. But for now, thanks for listening and have a great week.